Amen. Well, good morning. All right, 1 Corinthians 16, if you would turn there. There's a Bible. Uh, if you need to borrow one, there's a Bible in the chairs in front of you underneath. Uh, if you actually borrow a Bible, I can give you the page number. It's page 962. While you're doing that, as Pastor Maldi said, uh, we always encourage you, bring a, bring a notebook or bring something with you to take notes. Uh, I was just listening to that song um, that called Christ a lion, right? I, I just noticed that song lyric. I don't know the lyric off the top of my head, but it, it, it called Jesus a lion. And I was thinking that as we went through Revelation just before this, right, that we spent a day on why Jesus is called the lion, from the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I thought, okay, these are the things that we can look back on and remember, especially we see something in a song or we see something in a passage that we're reading through, right, and just looking back on those notes. So we always encourage that. If you don't have a, a notebook, you can always use the little note card in the back of the chair. Uh, and there is kids handout for the kids. We love having our families in here with us. So we're wrapping up 1 Corinthians today. And Paul has been working his way through a, a letter, which is actually a series of communications back and forth between the church in Corinth that Paul started, handed off left, went over and is now pastoring a church in Ephesus, and they're communicating back and forth. In fact, even some people have come and visited Paul from the church in Corinth, and there's been some ongoing struggles. Now, Paul dealt with those 10 issues, that's what his first letter to them is about. It's not really his first letter he wrote them, the first letter we have, right? And so he's dealt with things like division in the church and, and how we deal with kind of unchecked or unrepented of sin in the church, all those kind of things. And so he's dealt with those things, even communion and baptism, he's talked about a lot of things. And now he is wrapping up his letter, chapter 16, what we would call chapter 16, again, when Paul wrote this, I'm sure you know this, but just in case, there was no verse numbers and chapter numbers. He just wrote a letter, right? We've given ourselves some chapter breaks and verse breaks so that we can help find things when we're talking to people. So when I say turn to 1 Corinthians 16, like there's an actual place to go, right? But he's just wrapping up a letter. And what we would call this final chapter are his final instructions. And what he's going to do today is give us three disciplines that will help keep them in the two things he's been talking about, unity and purity. Unity in the church, purity in the church. So he's going to have three disciplines. So here's a, here's a note for you, final instructions for the church. Paul concludes his letter giving the Corinthian church three disciplines to guard their church's health. They will be financial giving, spiritual training, and mutual submission. Uh, all these notes are in the church app, just so you know. Uh, all the verses that we put up today, I'm going to use more verses than normal. Uh, but he is going to encourage us in those three ways. So, ready? 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. <clears throat> so this is the first area that Paul addresses, is uh, church giving or financial giving in the church, or financial generosity, however you want to say it. So he uses the language for the, concerning the collection for the saints, Right? And this is when the church gathers and they give, he's going to talk to them about what they give and how they give. He says, for the saints, and I want to just start with this emphasis, and this is something I remember 
we were, it was still kind of during COVID, and, and, but it was summer, and we were sitting outside, and a bunch of us went through the book of Acts together out on the patio. And I just remember looking at that and really seeing something differently than I'd ever seen it. And it was that really primarily the giving of the church uh, isn't necessarily to care for those outside the church, but really to care for those inside the church. Now, different context, the church in this era was being persecuted, so many of them had lost jobs. We talked about that in the book of Revelation. Many couldn't find work, do things. They'd lost incomes. And so really caring for one another became a hallmark of what they needed to do. Now, where we live in a free society where we have the freedom to worship and not just, not just worship but own a building and have a sign out front that says, you know, we get together at 10 to worship Jesus, maybe it's a different context, but really the primary focus really was about ministry and those within that ministry. It doesn't mean that's all you can do, but it really does emphasize the care for one another. And then he says, what I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, right? This is for all churches. Paul gave this direction to the churches in Galatia, and now he's giving it to the church in Corinth. He's making this a universal thing for churches to do. And so I want to start and just kind of let's, let's ask the question, okay, so what are we taught about tithing or about giving? And I want to start with what Paul is saying here is over and above this. So let's kind of build a foundation, something he already had taught the church, and let's go from there. So first verse, Leviticus 27, 30 through 32. This is, again, this in your app. So God says through Moses, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of, tithe of herds and flocks and every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So let's start out with a concept. You hear tithing, you only ever hear that in churches, right? Here's a definition. It means first tenth. And so what God was calling them to do was take whatever it is that they got, right? And in this culture, an agrarian society where they raised crops or they raised herds of cattle or animals, they raised those things. It was, it was one tenth. It was the first tenth of that. So if you had, if you had a sheep, you know, who had, if you, who had a, a, a little, what would you call it? Not a litter, not a, what, what, was, what is sheep? A flock. I'll go with that. Listen, college student, help me out here. All right, so uh, has baby ones, lambs, right? Okay, and you have 10 of them. One of them is God's, right? That's kind of how it works out. So one of each. If you grew crops, then one-tenth of it would be a tithe, but it was the first tenth. And the idea is to teach that you, you give to God because he is given to you. Right? And what it does is it teaches us that when we give to God first, that we must trust him for the rest. Make sense? You know, when you get paid, now, because we don't, most of us don't raise crops or herds or animals or flocks, thank you, uh, because we don't do that, really, it's cash. We have a different system. But when the check comes in or the income comes in, it's deposited in your account, however that works for you, to give to God first sometimes is a stretch when you're trying to figure out how the rest of it is going to make sense. So it teaches us to be dependent upon God. Notice in that verse too, you can add to it, right? So it's just a starting point. Next verse is Numbers 18. It says, but the Levites shall do the service of the, of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity, meaning the people's. It shall be a perpetual state throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel there shall have no inheritance. 
For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. So it explains now why the tithe exists. So God says, listen, I have chosen a group of people who are not going to get an inheritance like the other tribes did. So the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, they were all given land by God, land that is still being obviously fought about today, right? And so they were given an inheritance. But then the Levites were called to be the priests. They were the, the people that led in worship, that did the teaching. They were the ones that did the ministry among the people. And they went and lived among the people. But what they lived on was the tithe. And so as they would bring the tithe, it would support the ministry. The same thing exists today. Malachi 3, I know we just did this during the summer. This is about as strong as you can ever hear it. Malachi, or God through Malachi says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God's answer. And your tithes and contributions. Then here's what God says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I use this verse not because it, it has that big strong, will a man rob God? But I will explain that part but really because of the second half of that, because of the unique things that it says about our giving. So first things first. So Malachi is speaking to the people, and he says, listen, would you, if you, you know, kind of you got your income, so you got your paycheck, and you're like, I'm doing the math, and I just don't have enough money to pay my house payment. Would you skip your house payment? Would you skip your rent? He's like, no, because then they would kick you out, right? Now, would you skip paying taxes to the government? Now, I know we'd all like to, right? But we can't, not without federal prison in our futures, right? And so he's saying, will you honor men above God? Will you take care of these things and not consider God first? So that's his premise of, again, putting God first. But here's what he says. He says, and thereby, I want you to put me to the test. So he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. In other words, bring the tithe to the church, modern day language. It would have been synagogue or to the temple back then. Bring it to the storehouse. Again, they would store the food, care for the priest, right? But then he says, put me to the test. Nowhere else in Scripture, in fact, we're told not to test God. But this one place alone, God says, test me. Right? Give to me first, like I've called you to give. Take the first tenth of whatever it is you earn or whatever your tithe is. Give the first tenth to God. He says, and then put me to the test. Right? See if I won't provide for you. Right now, he's, he's not saying, as we, you've heard us discuss, he's not saying he's going to make you rich. If you give more, you're going to get more. It's none of that. God is saying, see if, when you trust me financially, if I won't provide for you. And I, and I know so many of us in the, in the church here have stories of, I trusted God in this, and the math didn't make sense, and yet God still cared for us, Right? You know, I can see heads nodding. Yeah, I mean, I, we've had those stories, right? And that's what God is saying is, see if you can't trust me. So he says, bring it to the church. He says, go provide for God first. We, do the, we, we honor God by giving to the church. We do that to provide local ministry and care for, uh, for the ministry, for the local church ministry. And so when we see this, God says, you can test me in this case. Let's read that again, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So this is an all-church kind of thing. This will live for history. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, 
so that there be no collecting when I come. So Paul gives like four tips, if you will, four things that we, the church, should do. And we'll contextualize one of them. But he says on the first day of the week. So what he's saying there is when you gather together like this, right? Worship in the New Testament moved away from Jewish practice of Sabbath, which was Saturday, to the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day that Jesus resurrected, the day of Pentecost. And so the church began to worship on Sunday, starting their work week, right? Starting their week, if you will, by giving the first part to God. Sound familiar? Okay. When you gather on the Lord's Day, when you get together for worship, he says, on the first day of the week, here's what you do. He says, each of you, he makes this kind of universal, like all of us, this isn't just for some, but for all. He says, put something aside and store it up. And so that's the giving part, right? When you give, this is how you do that. And the put something aside and store it up. Really, it's why we have a church budget, right? Our church exists because of your giving, right? You give, I give, we give, creating an income for the church to provide for both the people that work here, for the ministries that we do, for the care for people in the community, for care for people when they're struggling with something, we have the opportunity to do that. Because of your giving, and, and, and some of the things, I wish, wish we could share more of the things, because a lot of times when people are struggling, it's private, right? And so me or the deacons or one of the pastors, we get to help them. And we get to see the impact that it makes, but it's not something we can share. And, and, and again, I wish we could, because it's actually your giving that makes it happen. Are you with me? And so put it aside, store it up, like have a plan, have it, have, a, have it prepared. And this last line is super important. He says, as he may prosper. This goes up and down with what you make. Like if you're making less, obviously you're giving less. If you're making more, you're giving more. And I know there's this thing inside all of our heads that said, well, if I made more, I could do this. Ask anybody who makes more. Just the bills seem to go up with it, right? You learn here and you build a discipline for when you get here right? And so you create the discipline when you have less and when you don't have enough. And so he says, as you prosper, it'll grow, right? You grow your business, you grow your income, you make more, you can give more. But it, it goes with, in other words, with an income, if you will, right? So just one side note, in a world without digital banking and currency, what they would do is actually bring it into the church give it to the church. It was very public. They would kind of bring it in. You can read about it in Acts. They would kind of lay it down at the feet of the apostles. And it, granted, we do things differently, right? A lot of people give online. I give online, right? We do that. But the part that, that it, it is a reminder for me, right? Rather than being on the first day of the week, I don't actually bring cash or a check in. I just give online. But the part about that that I think makes, that is really important, more, maybe more important than the physical act is, where is our heart in that? Is this a part of our worship? And so for me, I've, I've answered the question that I, I can give online and it's worshipful, right? It's a part of how I worship God throughout my life, right? And I, I go through that, the, the action of doing it. Some people have made the choice, no, I'm going to come in, I'm going to bring it in, I'm going to drop it in the box on the way out, and I'm going to do that. My challenge for you, make sure that your giving is a part of your worship, right? That it comes from a place of saying, God gave to me that I can steward and I can give back to God. Does it make sense? Make it worshipful. However, you've got to do that. If, if you're like, you know what? Then I'm going to bring it and drop it in the box. Cool. You're going to do it online. You do it, whatever. But make it come from a place of worshiping God. So here's a note for you. We'll put this on the screen. 
Tithing is a discipline that teaches dependence on God to provide for our needs and places local church ministry as a priority in our lives. So here's how Paul is wrapping up his 10 issues the church has. He's giving them disciplines to participate in, to build as a church that will help guard the unity and the purity in the church. This is the first one. So verse 3 says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Part of what they're going to do with this is that he is taking up kind of an extra collection for the church in Jerusalem who is struggling. The church in Jerusalem now is kind of on the outside of Judaism, and they're on the outside of the Gentile world as well, the Roman world. And so they're struggling. And so all the other churches that Paul is working with, they're taking up kind of a separate collection. We do this every once in a while for a particular need, or we do it for our deacons. And our deacons are the ones who care for those in financial need, right? And so we give them a budget each year, and then if that budget doesn't last for the full year, then we'll go back and say, hey, we're going to take a special offering for the deacons. We'll do this so it'll do what they need for the rest of the year. We don't have to do that very often, uh, but when we do, the church is very generous. And so that's how we do it. And so he's kind of saying the same thing. Here's, you're going to have to designate some people that will take this gift to someone else. And what he's doing is he's really kind of guarding, he's giving accountability for the money, but he's also guarding the people from getting like robbed along the way of taking it somewhere. He offers to go, but he's like, I don't need to go, but if you want me to accompany them, I will, right? But also this giving that cares for other churches is something that we do. We partner with churches. We've talked a lot about Rudy Rubio and, and Reform Church LA, that we get to partner with them. We support them as a church plant. And it builds this relationship between churches, right? We get to care for them. And so our church, we give just like we call everybody else to give. Our church gives 10% away also to different church plants and ministries, some of which are like Man in the Mirror that we prayed for today. Some are other churches. And so it builds this relationship between churches and parachurch organizations. Verse 5. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. I love that he says, perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter, right? So Paul desires to go to them, and, and what we learn is between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he does. He goes and he sees them. He goes and spends some time with them. But he says, I don't want to see you now just in passing. I, I hope to spend some time with you. His entire relationship with the church in Corinth is around equipping them and building them up. And so when he says this, I, just, I can see Paul's pastoral heart of saying, listen, I don't want to just come through, have dinner, say goodbye, and bounce. Like, I want to spend some time with you. I'd like to spend the winter with you. Like, I'd like to spend some more time pouring into the church. And so he continues this relationship with this church that he once started. Verse 8, <clears throat> but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, a wide door of effective work has opened to me. We've talked about this, the, the church in Ephesus. When Paul moves into Ephesus and begins to share the gospel with people, and people begin to come to faith, <clears throat> there is such a stirring in Ephesus over time. He ends up staying there about three years. And the reason he leaves is he's arrested from Ephesus, right? And so 
<clears throat> he has these opportunities to come and go. He visits Corinth. He goes back. But over those three years, Christianity takes such, takes such root in Ephesus that the false worship they have to Diana or Artemis, that, that the, the people that make those idols actually start to lose money because Christianity is on the rise. This creates a riot in Ephesus. And, and this whole thing kind of culminates in Paul leaving, actually arrested and leaving and working his way over to Rome where he, his life ends for the gospel. I say that because this, Paul says, an effective door of ministry is open to me here. Like there's effective ministry. I, I'm like, I'm seeing change happen here in Ephesus. He says, so I want to come spend some time with you, but I also want to make sure that what's going on here in Ephesus continues. But then he throws in this odd little thing. He goes, there's many adversaries here too, which we know how that turns out. Turns out in a riot, right? But it reminds us of kind of the place inside the gospel where we live now, right? If, if the gospel is, is simply, or not simply, if the gospel is how God created the world and, and how it was designed and how we broke it and God's solution to it and then our eternal destiny, if it's, if it's just that, then we lose kind of the place where we are now. But rather when we see this, and we talked a lot about this last week, but God created a world for us to live in, right? That he designed it for us. And that we were created to be here and to bring glory to God here. Not just eternally, but here, right? And then humanity chooses to sin and breaks the world and we see all the repercussions of sin, all the things we struggle with because of that decision. We inherit that decision and then we also add to the problem. And so we live in this perpetual cycle of sin and brokenness in the world. But God, who could have just left us alone, could have said, listen, you made your choice. You continue to choose to sin. Rather than that, God becomes human. God becomes flesh. Jesus comes to earth. Jesus, the eternal creator who is fully God, becomes fully human. Something we've been kind of talking about over the past few Wednesdays, right? How does that work? Why is that needed? Why did Jesus need to do this? And how does it, you know, kind of how does it work for us? But then Jesus enters into human history and he lives the life that you and I are called to live, but choose not to. He dies a death in our place. He takes the wrath of God in our place, right? Substituting himself for us. And then changing us, transforming us as he is buried to forgive our sins and resurrected to give us a new life. He, in that, we find change, truly change in that. That the Spirit comes and lives in us to lead us, to guide us, direct us. And then he calls us to living here until he returns. But in this struggle here, in this time frame we live in, what he's calling us to do is be his people here. And that's what I see in, in Paul's words. Like there's effective ministry, but there's many adversaries. And I just think of that verse we used last week, and we'll put it, we'll put it up. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to Satan, cursing Satan, Right? And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So people that don't follow Jesus, that offspring, being in contention or in battle or in, in conflict with those who are offspring of those who are believers, non-believers, believers, right? And then, obviously, the famous part of this, he, meaning Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? The bruising his heel is Satan's going to think he has a victory on the cross. Look, Jesus died. And then three days later, as Jesus resurrects from the grave, obviously having victory 
over Satan. But this whole promise early in the gospel, early in human history, excuse me, about the gospel is that we will live in conflict, but somehow, some way, we are still glorifying to God here. My wife and I were reading a parable this week. I didn't realize it applied, but about the, the wheat that is planted and the weeds that are sown in among it. We're just talking about how, how somehow, some way, that we here now bring more glory to God than God getting rid of evil. I'm not exactly sure I understand the math, right? Like, how does this struggle bring more glory to God now than it would without evil, but somehow God is glorified in that? And so Paul says an effective ministry is going on here, an effective door of ministry. I'm, I'm opened up to the people of Ephesus, even though there are many adversaries. Remember, in the gospel, we will struggle, but the gospel still overcomes. Verse 10 says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Here's the second area of emphasis. Spiritual training and discipline, or, di or discipleship. So Timothy is an extension of Paul. Timothy's been sent by Paul, and he comes with Paul's authority, right? He is a disciple of Paul, a student of Paul, and so you're gonna, in, in that, you're going to see a lot of Paul in Timothy. Just a few weeks ago, uh, we had some, rel uh, some relatives, relatives of the even houses were in town, and John's brother, Jim, is an elder at a church that Pastor Vinny pastors. Many of you know Pastor Vinny. Okay. And so when he was here, we were talking after service, and he said, now I can see where Vinny gets a lot of kind of like some of the things he says and some of the things he does and some of the things he values. Like, I can see it in the two of you. And it was really, it was really a, I felt complimented in it because I think very highly of Pastor Vinny, right? That you would see something move from me to him that kind of stays in him almost like a genetic trait, a father looks like a son, or a son looks like a father, right? It was just kind of that passing on, and that's what Paul is saying. Timothy is going to come to you, and when he does, I want you to welcome him, and I want you to give him the respect that you would give me, that he is going to come, and he's going to carry on some of the work that I would be doing with you until I can get there. And so we're talking about him, and the, word, and the quote he says is, doing the work of the Lord as I am. Not just doing the work of the Lord, I am too, but he does it the way I do it. He does it as I will do it, right? And there's this passed off trait that Timothy carries with him that Paul has discipled into him. Last week, we talked about catechism and tradition. We talked about passing on the gospel, and we're going to read a verse of that in a minute. But let me, let me walk through some of the things that Paul says to the church in Corinth about this. So 1 Corinthians 4, we'll put these on the screen. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul has developed this, kind of established this way of discipling people, right? He's, he's got a, a habit, a tradition, a pattern of pouring into others. And he's done that with Timothy, and Timothy is beginning to replicate it, right? Timothy is doing things as Paul does. Now, just like I have done with Vinny, and Vinny probably does things, he takes on his own, his own personality in those things. He still has, he's still himself in it, but you can just see these passed on traits. That's what Paul is saying about Timothy, right? 
He's calling them to imitate him, right? And in discipleship, in training, and in leading or in teaching others, we should be able to look at the other person and say, listen, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul says a couple times. We'll see that in a minute. But you can imitate me. You can pass this on. But he says, listen, you're, I want you to follow Timothy because Timothy imitates me. When you see Timothy, he's going to do the same things I do. He's going to do them in such a way they should be familiar to you. Yeah, there'll be little changes, but you, this should seem familiar. Imitation is allowing others to see your faith lived out in your own life. 1 Corinthians 11.2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. This is where we talked, again, about why we do a catechism, right? Why we do a question and answer, why we do a memorized learning. It's been going on for thousands of years. Paul did the same thing. We talked about that a little bit last week, and we'll read that passage in a minute. But he's saying not only did you pass on the information, but you're also keeping the way I teach others. You're replicating that, right? And that's we're trying to multiply this discipleship. If I pour into you and you pour into someone else and someone else pours into someone else, by the time it gets around, it should look very similar to how it began, right? That it should be the whole gospel, that it should be complete, and this should have a bit of a tradition of how you pass it on to it. So Paul not only passed on truths, but he also passed on how to teach others those same truths. This is a place we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You can see Paul now in the middle. What he was taught, he has passed on. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Discipleship starts by thoroughly knowing the gospel and understanding the gospel. And Paul uses such language, and we can see this in other of his letters, that he's repeating the same language, that you can tell he was teaching them and they can memorize these things. So here's a note for you, discipleship and training. Discipleship is a church-wide discipline that focuses, on, focuses us on maturing in our faith, reminding us to always be learning, growing, and keeping our eyes on Jesus. I want you to hear that. It focuses us collectively on maturing in our faith. I say that because me discipling someone else grows me as well as someone else, right? That principle is true everywhere if you've been in martial arts at all, right? Once you learn so much, the next step is you begin teaching others, right? And it builds fundamentals. It builds key things that you might miss that you have to know, and it grows you in the same way with discipleship. Teaching the gospel, teaching scripture over and over again keeps you grounded in the fundamentals of faith, and it makes sure that you pass on everything that is necessary. It grows all of us. As we focus on discipleship, we grow and mature together. Verse 11, Paul's still talking about Timothy. He says, so let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. When his job is done there, send him on back, right? Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. If you remember all the way back to 1 Corinthians 1, which feels like a long time ago, a couple months ago, there was this, the first issue of unity and purity was people following particular teachers inside the church right? And kind of putting them against each other. Well, Apollo said this. Well, Paul said this. Well, Jesus says this or whatever, right? 
and not in a healthy way, but rather of kind of a following of people more than a following of Jesus. And it seems like Paul and Apollos might be on different teams, if you will, but he's, they're not. And Paul's like, listen, I encouraged him, go see you guys, right? It just reminds me that even though the people were kind of following different people and maybe putting them at odds with one another, the people that, that were leading this church, like Apollos and Paul, they're all unified in this, right? They're all in the same place, right? Their leaders are all together. Verse 13, it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. We used this for our men's retreat about a year and a half ago. Um, but the act like men here isn't just for men. Men and women are kind of included in that. It's, it's more of like a be the adult that, that is necessary in this. Let me, let me walk you through. It says be watchful, be in constant readiness, be on alert, right? And I want you to just think about this as we look at our church, as we look at our own lives, as we look at how we approach our faith. Do we consider ourselves always on alert for the sake of the gospel, right? Always on alert for the sake of the church? Probably not, right? We, we live in a place where we are free to worship as we choose to worship, so we don't feel like the same kind of pressure that a church under persecution is. I would say we need this just as much because we're always needing to be on alert for false teachings and false gospels and false people, false, false leaders, right? Because just because we're allowed to worship as we choose to and just because we have scripture does not mean that people don't try and mislead. He says, stand firm in the faith. Be firmly committed in your conviction to your faith or to the, the gospel or to the key doctrines or tenets of Christianity. We always stand firm in that. Right? All day long, every day, we are being asked or pushed or told to compromise values that, that, that are a part of our faith. Things are always fighting for time that should be spent with God. Things are always crowding in or encroaching upon things that would grow our faith. The whole world typically is pulling away from God. We need to stand firm in our faith. For today, I want you to hear act like men, although there's a lot of application to the, to the men. I want you to hear act like adults or act like the mature. So men and women need to make the necessary hard choices, not just the easy ones, right? The church needs to make those hard choices. Remember, back a few chapters ago, about 10 chapters ago, they, were, have this, they had this guy who was just unrepentantly living in, in gross sin, and, and they were allowing it and not challenging this guy. And Paul had already dealt with this issue. Like, this guy can't belong, be a member of your church. Like, he's not living for Jesus right now. And he's calling him in this moment, like, you have to make, sometimes you have to make those hard decisions. But it's like parenting. Parenting isn't you being a best friend with your kid. Now, you guys can be on a friendly relationship. Hopefully, it's a great relationship. But there are times where the parent has to make the hard decision. No, this is bad for you. Or yes, you need to continue this. You have to do this, right? Parenting is different than just being a friend. That's what he's saying, like, the necessary hard choices in the church, sometimes you have to live those out. He says, be strong. Paul's 10 issues of unity and purity require being strong. They require being strong in the faith, being strong together as a body. And then he closes it up. He says, let all that you do be done in love. See, loving God and loving one another 
is Paul's basis for all of this. That they would love one another so much that they would live sacrificially for one another. That they would love God so much that the world around them that wants to pull them away would fade. And that they would lean into God. And by leaning into God, also leaning into one another. Paul writes, or Jesus talks about this. Peter writes about some of this. I wanted to show you two verses from two other people. 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Peter says the very kind of same thing to the church, to the Christians that he is writing to. Right? Be sober, be aware. You have a real enemy who is prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour you. We need to know that doesn't just mean the church in persecution. That same enemy exists here today. That we are being, that we become prey when our enemy finds us not watching. Jesus says this in Luke 10 when asked what's the most important thing to know or to do. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? He says, listen, the two most important things you can understand is to love God above everything else. With all of your being, with all of your energy, with all of who you are, all your might, all your strength, all your mind, all your soul, you love God with everything. And then Jesus doesn't even pause and says, and the second thing is just like that, love your neighbor as yourself. Put others, and, and then obviously, as we look at the church and all that Paul's been saying about being a unified church, it's putting the church above yourself too. And so it's putting others under God, but above yourself, and learning how to live in that kind of relationship. Verse 15, Paul says this, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Ikea, and that they have devoted themselves to the servants of the saints. So Stephanus was an early, uh, early convert in Corinth and becomes a leader in the Corinthian church. Verse 16, it says, Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. So the third discipline that Paul is talking about is mutual submission. He begins with Stephanus, an early church leader in Corinth. But then he also says, and to every fellow worker. So I'm going to use these two languages. So he uses leadership and membership, right? He uses those who belong locally, the fellow workers alongside you. Those are peers and leaders who lead among you, right? And I don't mean that leaders are not peers. Leaders are also peers, right? But he's saying, I want you to, I want you to be submitted to them and to them. So we are to humbly trust the local church community and its leaders not because they're perfect and not because they're always trustworthy, always do the right things, but rather because we're the body of Christ and we trust in the spirit that leads us, right? That's what helps us. And especially, especially as you gather membership in the church, those who have formally covenanted together to be a family, right? There will be sometimes different ideas on how to go about something, but the trust is not in people. The trust is in the Holy Spirit within the people. That's why it's a requirement. Like, that you have to be a follower of Jesus to be a member of a church, right? That, you, you, that this must be because we're going to share in the responsibility. So there's three quick verses. James 4. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, 
You, it can read easier, you who are double-minded. He's talking about people who are living half in the world, half in faith, right? So submission to God as a church helps us identify our sins and keep us holy. Remember, holy meaning set apart for the work God has for us. Hebrews 13 is the next one. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right? Submission to leaders also protects us from things we can't see. And those leaders are held accountable for how they lead. Ephesians 5 is the next one. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission to the church mutually over all is out of obedience to Jesus. And so he talks about mutual submission, how they are to work with both the leaders and the members of the church. And so we'll put a note, I'll put a note up here for you. Submission is a discipline of humility, trusting that God has placed us in a local church with godly leaders and members who desire, forgive the typo, desire God's best for each of us, right? It's a discipline of humility, trusting that God has placed us here now with godly leaders and godly one another, godly members, so that we can learn how to grow in that dependence and submission. Verse 17, he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Icacus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Again, I just want to point out, Paul has this ongoing relationship. He misses them. He longs for them. And, and when they're not there, because, well, it's actually he's not there. They're all still in Corinth. He's now in Ephesus. But people are coming and visiting him. Like he has this ongoing relationship and his love for them is obvious. Verse 19, it says, the churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, that's the shortened form of Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Again, remember these, these local churches, the local church is the organization that, that Jesus has commissioned us to. Local churches, plural, also get to partner together to do work together. And so this church and these churches over here in Asia, they send you greetings. They, they send you their love. They're praying for you. Verse 20, and all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now we hear that, and that's super awkward in this culture, right? Like that's not something that is familiar to us. If it said like, greet each other with a holy handshake or a holy fist bump, you'd be like, all right, I get it, right? But here's what he's talking about. In this culture, at this time, when families came together and they saw each other, they gave each other a kiss, right? Extended family, male family members, female family members. When they got together, they greeted each other with a kiss. And he's saying, I want you to remember you're a family and to greet each other with a holy, in other words, a spiritual family greeting. I want you to remember that you're a family. You're more than just people who happen to be at the same place at the same time on Sunday mornings who sing the same songs and listen to the same passage, but rather that you're a family. And I want you to remember that and treat one another as family. As he is concluding his message, one of the final things he does is to point out the family of families that is the local church. And he said, I want you to live this way and treat one another this way. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So Paul has somebody writing for him. And throughout his different letters, sometimes we hear that uh, 
maybe his vision has been a problem or whatever it might be. There's a lot of theories. doesn't really relate, but there are often times where Paul will actually grab the pen and say, hey, I want from me to you. The whole thing's from me, but I want to put my hand, my pen to paper. Verse 22, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. He's like, if anybody opposes us, let them be cursed. Jesus, come. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to put a verse up behind me. I want to put 1 Corinthians 1.3 up, and I want to, if, Marcia, if you just leave it there for a little bit. Paul does this a lot, and we've talked about this in a few different letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace, grace and peace. Paul opens, I think, every single letter except his pastoral epistles where he writes to Timothy and Titus, and he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace and peace is this, this opening greeting that Paul gives. And we've talked a lot about this. You cannot have peace unless you first experience grace. Right? The gospel is the premise to peace. All of Ephesians is writ around, written around this. The first three chapters are about the grace of the gospel. The last three chapters how to have peace in this world because of the gospel. So he says, grace to you. I just want you to see that for a minute. Now, we'll just leave that verse up there, but now I want you to read verse 23 again. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. He says, I'm sending grace. I'm writing this letter that it would be grace to you. Now that you've received the letter, with its encouragements, with its corrections, your obedience keeps grace with you. It goes from to you to staying with you. Grace be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul closes this with the reminder that even hard to hear letters, even corrections that hurt, corrections that call us out, those things are meant to be grace because they call us to repentance. They teach us about how to follow Jesus more correctly, more accurately more rightly. And that when we obey that, when we hear the correction, when we live that way, when we start to live out the things that we are called to, grace remains. We grow because of the obedience. So he closes off a very hard letter where at times you can feel the heat of what he's saying. But it is meant to be grace. And if you obey, grace remains. If we hear this, it is grace to us. If we obey, it is grace with us. Paul says, let this be grace that lives inside your church. So each week we talk about takeaways. What is something we heard today that we want to live out over the next week, two weeks? And so I want to give you some prompts, some ideas. So for myself, I want to focus on discipleship in the church more broadly, we do a lot of discipleship now, but I want to see 2024 be a year where we emphasize discipleship, learning, growing, understanding that we all continue to learn. No one ever arrives. No one has ever mastered Jesus and just parked there. That we are all learning and growing. And I want to see that church-wide as a goal for the next year. For those of you who've been walking with Jesus for some time, you're needed to help us learn to give, to grow, to submit mutually to one another. Your model, your witness 
as the mature in faith, as those who have been walking with Jesus longer than others, your witness, your, your imitation, your model is needed. For those of you that are newer to faith, obedience and all these things take work, and they go against our normal or human ways of thinking, but God honors and provides through them. They take work, and they're counterintuitive sometimes, but God uses them to grow us and provide for us. For those of you that are not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this. The gospel is a victory through struggle gospel because it is all about dependence on God. And we are so used to being dependent upon human things. But learning to trust in God and one another does amazing things for your life. Jesus came and endured the struggle for us sacrificing everything for us so that we could learn, it's not easy, but we learn in that, that through the struggle we grow and mature. Parents with kids, do you disciple your kids intentionally and systematically? And do you teach them the value of the local church? Let's take some time. Let's, let's spend two or three minutes. Uh, make sure nobody around you gets left out. Let's, what is your takeaway? What is something you want to apply to your lives over the next week or so?